Well, now I go to see the president. And the protocol for the interview was that I had to ask my questions in English. Then they would discuss it among themselves in Spanish to see who was going to lie to me back in English. <laughs> and, and after about, and this is where I got in trouble. And, and I learned a very important lesson. Thank God I learned it early. And that is the fact that I speak Spanish doesn't necessarily have to be a secret I share with them. And, and after the third lie, I looked at the president and I said, Señor Presidente, mi pregunta es solamente para usted, ¿verdad? Which basically said, hey, I'm talking to you. This is Up in the Air, a show about travel adventures, frequent flying, and the unique experiences we have along the way. I'm Ina Grimace, and in this episode, you'll hear from Peter Greenberg about getting deported from Guatemala, how he befriended the King of Jordan and flew 23 million miles on his way to becoming the most well-respected travel journalist in the country. When you speak with well-traveled people, they tend to have a clearly defined area of expertise. The friend who knows all the best places to stay, the person who actually knows how to use their airline miles, credit card points, or how the business of tourism really works. Sure, many of these things are inextricably linked, but when I say my guest today understands the travel business better than anyone else, it's hard for me to overstate how accurate that is. Peter Greenberg is widely regarded as America's most recognized, honored, and respected frontline travel news journalist. He's covered many of the most consequential stories in the travel industry for the last three decades and flown nearly every notable airline in the world in the process of doing so. He is the epitome of the phrase, a wealth of knowledge, and I've never spoken with someone as well-versed in the world of travel as Peter is. The range of experiences he's had while traveling and reporting on the world has given him an unparalleled perspective, and while he could recommend a thousand places to visit, he likes to say that it isn't his job to promote travel, but instead to present it. How did your book, Don't Go There, fit into that line of thinking? Well, that's a perfect example. You know, when you think about it, our time is limited, our budget's limited. I hate the brochure mentality. I hate promoting travel because every word that ends in ST finds its way into a brochure. You know, best, most, greatest, loveliest. And we all know that's garbage. Yeah. And so I thought I had a, I had a great idea for a book. And the interesting background about the idea was that every publisher I took it to didn't want to do it. Yeah. My own staff didn't want to do it. And I finally said, guys, it's an obvious idea. It needs to be done. That's what people want to know about. Yeah. They don't need me to promote where to go. They need me to tell them not to turn left or maybe maybe not to turn right. And so what I did is I went to my publisher and I said, I'm going to make you an offer you shouldn't refuse. Pay me no money for this book. Give me no advance. Ah. The only thing I'll do, I'll pay for everything, but you publish it. And then you're going to pay me X number of dollars every time it sells. Mm -hmm. I'm not working against an advance. You're just going to pay me if it sells. And one more thing. When it goes on the New York Times bestseller list, (laughs) you're going to have to pay me an unbelievable amount of money. (laughs) And they laughed. They said, we'll make that deal in a second because it'll never happen. I said, okay, make the deal. (laughs) Well, we did the book and you know the end of the story. It went on the New York Times bestseller list. So there you go. Yeah. How does somewhere end up on that list? Well, we actually codified it in different areas by uh, pollution, crime, uh, alcoholism, uh, highway safety, um, uh, 
prostitution. I mean, hmm. all the different things that go into making a place not necessarily worthwhile, worth visiting or worth going to. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so we, we didn't say, you know, uh, don't go to this one particular place. We said, if you're going there, this is, the, this is a good reason why you shouldn't go there for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reaction to the book was uh, was interesting and somewhat surprising. Uh and maybe somewhat inevitable. Uh, I was banned from a number of cities. <laughs> um, uh, uh, mayors and police chiefs would hold press conferences to basically call me a jerk and never and have me never come back again. Um, and it was interesting because uh, I remember one, uh, the, the mayor and the police chief of North Charleston, South Carolina, <laughs> one of the places in my book that I said don't go because of their high crime rate. Yeah. I mean, a seriously high crime rate. They said to me, we don't want you to come back here anymore because you don't know what it's like to be here at all. In fact, you know, why don't you, uh, we want to, we, uh, we insist, why don't you come with us on our anti-crime patrols at night? <laughs> and I said, and I said, and by the way, this is on live television. And I said to them, oh my God. can I ask a question? Let me see. Would you be having anti-crime patrols? Let me see. Wait for it. Because you have crime. <laughs> and right the the one the best one of all was the governor of Vermont who ambushed me on a Boston television station. I didn't know he was going to be on the show, and uh, and I basically said about about uh, Vermont uh, that there was a couple of places there you shouldn't go to, and and the reason for that is most people don't know this. At the time we did the book, uh, it had the highest number of polluted lakes and rivers in America. Vermont. Wow. wow. Mostly due to agricultural runoff and stuff like that, not sure. like chemical plants, but still serious problem. Yeah. So while I'm on doing the show for for Boston, here comes the governor of Vermont saying, "Why would you say such a thing? That's not your job. Your job is to promote travel." <laughs> and I said, "Governor, you got me wrong. That is not my job. Yeah. My job is to report on it." He said, "But you, you, why would you tell people this?" I said. Are you telling me that my facts are wrong? If they are, we're live on television. Please <laughs> tell me and I'll correct them. He said, well, I don't like your sentiment. And I looked at him. I said, Governor, with all due respect, I don't like your sediment. <laughs> and uh, that was the end of that discussion. <laughs> so there you go. Wow. We're just getting started here, but I have another deep question, which is, you know, you have a big passion for shedding light on the travel experience. Obviously, that's been your whole career, but giving people the information they need to have an awesome experience is obviously really important to you. It's why you wrote the book telling people where not to go, but what goal are you trying to accomplish through your work in travel? Well, it's really more about the process of travel than the destination itself, because if you can uh, get through the process, then you can actually have the experience. Mm -hmm. And most people don't focus on the process and then they get beaten up by it. Uh, You know, I, I, I I once counted about 47 different points of abuse uh, that await you from the time you make a reservation until you struggle home with your bags and after baggage claim uh, when the trip is over. And so sort of my goal is to first identify those points of abuse and then show you in reasonable, practical and legal ways how to mitigate them yeah. uh, or in some cases how to eliminate them. And if you can do that, then you're, you've got a halfway decent shot of having a great travel experience. Yeah. There's so many different travel shows and you've had several, uh, or that's several is probably conservative really, but what, what considerations do you make when you're trying to come up with concepts for new shows? I mean, the Royal tour is an amazing concept, but how did you come up with that? 
Well, it actually happened accidentally. I was over in Jordan back in 1998 doing a show for the Travel Channel, and I needed a helicopter. Now, normally, as a producer, if you need a helicopter, you you know you call the guy with a helicopter. Well, in the monarchy and the Kingdom of Jordan, that didn't work that way then. Uh, the helicopters are controlled by the military. Huh. And I was told the only person who could get us a helicopter was the commander of special forces, uh, who happened to be a prince. Hmm. And so I said, can I have an appointment with him? So I went to see him. We became fast friends. Uh, we had so much in common. And uh, I got the helicopter. But then uh, we went out to dinner, he and I and his brothers. And, uh, and this is during the time of the Intifada and, and uh, no one was traveling to, to the Middle East. And I said to him, look, I got an idea. Um, it just came to me. I said, why don't I come back here with a camera crew? And why don't you be my tour guide to the country? Just the two of us. Yeah. And, and he said, I love it. Huh. Well, uh, he was the prince. His father was King Hussein. And about five months later, his father was dying and this prince was never supposed to be the king. It was supposed to be his uncle, the crown prince. Yeah. And his, his father, King Hussein, changed his mind at the last minute and called him to his bedside and said, it's going to be you. Whoa. You're the new king. And, and his son said to him, but sir, I never wanted this job. And he goes, that's why you're getting it. Huh. And, and he became the king. And I mean, and then it became crystal clear to me, this is the, this is meant to be, we got to do it. Yeah. Well, at that moment, uh, he was surrounded by a whole new group of uh, advisors and gatekeepers and no one would let me get near him. Hmm. And, and so I knew we wanted to do it. So what I did was I, uh, found out his schedule when he was going to be certain places in Amman. I flew there myself on, a, on just, I just decided to take a shot. Yeah. He was going to be at a hotel the next the next morning at 10 o'clock for a meeting. So I, I went to that hotel, checked in the night before, and was sitting in the lobby by 8 o'clock the next morning. Hmm. And sure enough, at 10 o'clock, he walked in with a with an entourage of about 40. He took one look at me, and he goes, what are you doing here? <laughs> and I said, remember what we talked about? He said, yeah. I said, you ready to do it now? He goes, absolutely. Huh. And I said, I said, can, we, can I meet you at the palace tomorrow? He said, I'll send a car. Wow. And... The next day, we went to the palace, and this is a true story. Uh, everybody who was in that meeting, all of his advisors, were arguing against it, telling him it was not, not a good idea, it was not prestigious enough, and besides that, it's not the right time in the Middle East. Mm. And I spoke up at that moment, and I said, excuse me, everybody, but when has it ever been the, time, the right time in the Middle East? Great question. And, and the king looked at me, and he said, he's absolutely right. We're doing it. And his advisor said, but your majesty. And the king said, excuse me, I'm the king. And I looked at him and I said, I love it when you say that. <laughs> and, and he laughed and the rest is history. And and in fact, uh, that was 20 years ago. And this year, we're doing the 20th anniversary royal tour with the king again. We're going back. Oh, that's awesome. Um, and we're doing it with the king and his son, who's the crown prince, who was six years old, when we did the first one, who's in the show, by the way, hmm. and now he's the heir apparent, and we're doing it with both of them. Is it King Abdullah now? Is that his name? No, King Abdullah, is, exactly. Yeah. So if you had to put your finger on the or a key takeaway from 
touring around these countries with their leaders, their heads of state, what, what, what would that be? Well, it's interesting because in every country, there's always an opposition party, except, of course, in the monarchy of Jordan. Hmm. But in every other country where there's not a king, um, there's always going to be things you agree with and things that you don't. Uh, if I were to determine where I went based on the politics of the leader, we'd never do a single show. Yeah. Uh, and so what you learn on these shows, and remember, you're inside the bubble for two weeks. Mm-hmm. You're in every time they're in a car, you're in a car. It's just a two. It, imagine it's two guys on a road trip. One of them just happens to run the country. <laughs> right. So what you learn is that you can disagree with a lot. But what travel does for everybody is it breaks down barriers. Uh, it, fi- it allows you, whether you want to or not, find common ground. And, and in that common ground, it allows you to have a conversation. And hmm. out of those conversations comes a whole lot of understanding. Um, and I'm not going to start singing Kumbaya here. I'm just going to say this is the, the reaction that I would have and the actual result that happens on every one of these shows. Yeah, right. Hard to deny that when it happens every time. Yeah. Speaking of not not singing Kumbaya, I mean, you've had a pretty, uh, by any reasonable measure, a pretty amazing life, but what hardship has defined your character? Huh. We like to focus on all the, the fluffy stuff yeah. on travel podcasts, but I, I think it's really interesting to hear from people what hardship has defined them and, and helped them go in this direction. Well, I can talk to you about professional and I can talk to you about personal. Uh, The professional is actually easier to talk about. And that is that people don't understand still what I do. Hmm. Uh, I'm an investigative reporter. I I started my career as the youngest correspondent in the history of Newsweek. Uh, My stories were Watergate, Patty Hearst, Howard Hughes, Gary Gilmore, Vietnam. I mean, I can go on. Um, And... And yet to this day, people are saying to me, well, how did you make the transition from journalism to travel? I said, stop right there. There's no transition. I've just applied my investigative reporting techniques to the largest industry in the world. I was still one of the principal reporters in the OJ case. I was still brought in on the John Bonet case. Uh, when there's a major fire, you'll see me reporting it because most people don't realize I'm also still an active fireman in New York. Yeah, I saw that. That's awesome. Uh, so... It's always letting people know that travel is not fluff. Travel is not size zero women with breast enlarged into the wine glass at the pool. <laughs> um, it's That's not me. Um, and I take it seriously because I know that the people who follow me and who listen to me and maybe even disagree with me sometimes, they take travel seriously as well. So that would be the professional challenge of letting people know that what I talk about is not lovely London or beautiful Bermuda. Um, and the only time I really talk about a destination in, in particular is when I'm doing that show with, with the head of state. Mm-hmm. On, on a personal level, I guess I've lost too many friends mm. um, around the world, whether by war or disease, and recently to COVID. Yeah. Uh, I've, uh, you know, one of my biggest personal hardships is that, you know, my, my parents... My father died 30, 30 years ago the next month. Yeah. Um, and my, my mother died 18 years ago this week. Hmm. Um, and neither of them were, uh, were around to, to share in what they created. Yeah. 
and uh, that's that's one of the great regrets and and uh it continues to uh you know to challenge me because you know i really owe them everything yeah uh that's a great answer you you did speak to how travel breaks down barriers and of, of course that's kind of universally ag- agreed upon um but i wonder what what specific evidence would you point to that travel content and information about the world of travel what what evidence would you point to that 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 sort of content showcases different cultures and places actually inspires action which facilitates the breaking down of those barriers oh that's an easy one um you know if you talk to most people and i'll I'll include you in this as well and you ask them what their best experience was when they traveled it was when their plans didn't work it was when they you know they made a a wrong turn and it changed their life for the better well there are a lot of destinations out there that by definition in terms of people's fears represent a wrong turn Mm -hmm. and you know, there are 196 countries in the world, give or take one or two based on the UN count. And there are only about four I wouldn't go to. And my criteria for not going might surprise you. Uh, there's a wonderful line in the movie Apocalypse Now, where Martin Sheen is going up the river and he gets involved in this, where he, gets, he shows up in the middle of this huge firefight at night on the river. And he goes to one of the GIs there and he goes, who's in charge here? And the guy looks at him and he goes, Nobody. Hmm. And that to me is the most fearful line in that movie. That's the most scary line in that movie. And so the four countries that I wouldn't go to are the countries where no one's in charge. Yeah. So would I go to North Korea today? You bet. I've already been three times because I know who's in charge. Yeah. Would I go to Iran today? You bet. Because I know who's in charge. Would I go, you know, would I go to Yemen today? Probably not, because nobody's in charge. So, you know, but I've, I'm running out of countries not to go to. Sure, that's it. So the answer to your question is, with maybe four exceptions in the entire world, and those and and those four exceptions are probably going to decrease in number. There's no place I wouldn't go, because what I've learned, even in the most adversarial situations, is you can find that common ground and you can turn things around. Uh, I mean, in, in in crazy places. I mean, really crazy places. Um, and I've been to most of them. Yep. Just touching on the uh, let's let's call it travel recommendations. I I've read uh, and heard you talk about the State Department travel advisors and that you're not a particularly big fan of how they work. So could you talk about that and how you think that yeah they need to be adjusted or totally reformed in order to paint an accurate picture? They've always sucked, <laughs> um, and I, I won't be shy about it. Uh, you know, I'll tell you, before I even answer that question, I'll tell you something that happened to me one day on CBS News. And remember, live show. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about, about what to do if you're in a foreign country and something gets crazy. Where do you go? Where do you seek help? And I said something that drove the U.S. State Department absolutely nuts. <laughs> um, and they started calling CBS News, demanding I be fired. And I said, when the you-know-what hits the fan... The absolute last place I go is the U.S. Embassy. I would never go near the U.S. Embassy when the when the you know what hits the fan, huh. because it's the very first place that shuts down and gets bunkered. It's the huh. very first place that shuts until closes its doors. I said I'd much rather go to the Canadian Embassy, the Brits, or the Australians. They're too cool for school. They take care of their people. They'll protect you. And if you look at the history in the last forty years, I'm absolutely right. 
And the State Department demanded I be fired by CBS because I was misleading the American public because the Canadian embassy could not perform passport services. Excuse me. I'm not looking for a passport service when bombs are going off. I'm looking for shelter. Yeah. <laughs> right? I can work on the passport later. I could yeah. care less what stamps are in my passport. I need to get protected. And in some cases, hidden. Look at all the Iranian hostage situation. Look at the um, look at what happened in Kuwait when Ar- when Iraq invaded. Where were all the Americans being protected? In the Canadian embassy. What a surprise! Mm. Okay, so that answers the first part. Now let's get down to the State Department advisories in particular. Yeah, I will start off. The only thing I'm going to say that's nice about them, they're well intentioned. We're done now. <laughs> now I'm going to tell you the problem. It's the execution. Okay, the original incarnation of the State Department advisories was not universally applied. It was selectively applied. I mean, for 50 years, there was never really a State Department advisory to Northern Ireland, but there was one to Jordan. And more people were getting killed in Northern Ireland. What are you kidding me, right? People were getting blown up. Hotels are being destroyed. So it really didn't help because the three words, State Department advisory, instill fear on Americans. And they they hear those three words, they go, I'm not going. Well, let's go back to the old days before the State Department and the Trump administration tried to change it. In the old days, you know what the State Department advisory was for Turkey? I don't. Americans warned that Turkish drivers passed on the left and the right. Ooh. <laughs> Is that going to stop me from going to Istanbul? Yeah, welcome to LA. Have they, been on the four, have they been on the 405 freeway? Are they kidding me? So so that's the uh, that's the first one. You know, what the, you know what the one was for Indonesia? Hmm. Americans are warned warned to stay away from large crowds and avoid buses. I live in L.A. and I stay away from large crowds and I avoid buses, but for another reason. In L.A., I have have absolutely no idea where the buses go. That's terrorism. (laughs) I mean, I'll get on a bus and never come back. So, so that was it was it was misleading. Yeah. Even though it was well intentioned. So, what did they do in the Trump administration? They said, you know what, we need to revise these and make them more uh, meaningful to travelers. So instead of having selective travel advisories for selected destinations, they decided to have a travel advisory for every destination in the world, every country in the world. And then they were going to divide them along four different tiers. So let me walk them through you for you. Yep. I mean, it's, it, it's a little absurd. Again, well-intentioned, but ridiculous. Level one means travel with normal caution. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> travel with normal caution. To me, that means Try not to trip and fall, okay? Sure, if you had to categorize it. Travel number number two is travel with increased caution. To most Americans, that means you're boarding up your windows. Yeah. You know, it's like, and then comes travel level number three, which says reconsider travel. Now you're in the basement in the fallout shelter. Right. And then travel level number four, three words, do not travel. Yeah. Well, are we painting with a broad brush or what? Yeah. So- you know, if there's a riot in Cincinnati, that doesn't mean I can't go to Cleveland. Yeah. And and so we're scaring the hell out of people. Uh, and and so what I recommend, honestly, and you can easily access it online, get the travel advisories from the British Foreign Office that they send to their own citizens. Mm. They're much better. They do a much better job. And chances are that the, the information that they're getting is from their own embassy personnel in those locations People who actually leave the building and hang out in the streets and tell you what's going on. People at U.S. embassies never leave the PX. They're in there having an Oreo. Yeah, great tip. You know? Yeah. Well, on this podcast, I do this segment called Explain That Gram. I go back through your Instagram and I 
pick a photo where I assume that there's more to the story than what what is there on Instagram. So I went back through yours and I picked a photo of you in a torpedo tube on a nuclear attack submarine. So I would love yeah. to hear more about how you got there. Well, it's a great story. Uh, when I was, uh, one of my other incarnations was I was, uh, I produced a number of movies. And one of the last stories I did for Newsweek before I left to produce a movie was something called Red Flag. Red Flag, by the way, still being done today out at Nellis Air Force Base in Nevada. But at the end of the Cold War, it was at its height. And what that was, was they brought a group of the best fighter pilots in America. Mm-hmm. And they permanently based them at Nellis Air Force Base, right outside Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. And they have a lot of real estate out there. It's called the desert. <laughs> and it's just, it's government land. And so they went out there and redid the desert, literally redid the desert and made it like Eastern Europe or Russia. Oh, wow. And, and then they would bring in other squadrons of Navy, Air Force, or Marine pilots from bases all over the world, and they put them there for two weeks at Nellis Air Force Base and say, okay, you've got all this landscape out here. Go attack Russia. Yeah. And they'd get up there and they'd fly their planes. And, and, uh, and then the aggressor squadron, the guys who were playing the Russians, those permanently based group of the best fighter pilots we had, would fight against them. Yeah. Well, everything was done in three-dimensional projection and, and laser optics, and everything was video recorded. And after the first time they flew, they'd come back into a briefing room, and all these visiting airmen would be brought into the room and shown themselves being shot down. Hmm. They had no idea how badly they were flying. Yeah. They did not know how to fly against Soviet tactics in those days, Soviet tactics. Yep. And as a result, they became really well-trained and uh, in, in how to fly against Russian tactics, okay? Copy that. Which is how the Russians were training a lot of air forces around the world. One small problem with this story, which I didn't know at the time, it only happened after I came back and after the story ran. And remember, I had to be qualified. I, I flew it, by the way. Oh, and wow. I had to be qualified. Oh, yeah. And I had to go down to Kelly Air Force Base in Texas and get into the centrifuge and be, and be trained and, and pull at trained least nine Trained on the, uh, the seat, right? The oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The ejection, ejection, seat, ejection well. seat right. Yeah, we did the ejection seat training, but I also had to go to the centrifuge to prove that I could pull at least nine Gs. Because when these guys were flying, the rule book was going out the window. And and so I I, I passed and I came and I did the story. Story ran. And then the strangest thing happened. I started getting letters to me from mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, sons and daughters of of pilots who had died in Red Flag. Oh. Uh, Because the, 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 the simulation and the war games were so real that they were taking themselves and or their planes beyond their limits and they were dying. And so under the freedom of information act, uh, I requested and got all the accident reports and it was staggering. What was even more staggering is one of the more recent accident reports I got was on the, uh, one of the pilots who had trained me, who was the flight surgeon who had died himself two weeks later. Oh my God. And so, I put together and I said, you know what? We need to do a movie. Yeah. And so I hired Tom Cook, who a name you probably don't remember, but you will remember one of the movies he did called The China Syndrome. Yeah. And he wrote the screenplay. I sold it to CBS. And we we, we actually went back to Nellis Air Force Base and shot it there. And my pilot for that show 
who just recently died about a month ago, was the legend of all legends, Chuck Yeager. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Yep, Chuck Yeager was my pilot, and uh, and we did the show. Wow. And when the show and when the show aired, I got a call from the Navy, and the Navy said, "We love the show that you did on Red Flag. Would you like to do a movie with us?" Mm-hmm. And I said, "Yes, I would." And they said, "You have an idea?" I said, "Yes, I do." And I gave them my idea, and they completely laughed at me, and they said, you picked the one branch of the Navy that will never let you do it. It's the most top-secret branch of the Navy. It'll never happen. And I said, well, and of course, what I wanted to do, submarines. Yep. And, and I said, well, will they ever give me permission? No. But if they were to give me permission, who would give me permission? That would be the commander-in-chief of the Pacific, sink back in <laughs> Pearl Harbor. Yeah. I said- can you get me an appointment with him? You want to meet with the Admiral? Yeah. You're going to go all the way out to Honolulu just so we can say no? <laughs> yeah. So they said, okay, you have an appointment. You're seeing him Monday morning at 9 a.m. Be at the gate early. So I was at the gate by 8 a.m. Right. And I knew I only had a 10-minute appointment with him. And I knew he didn't want to meet with me. He was just told to meet with me. Right. It was a nuisance courtesy meeting. And it's a true story. I walked in. He wouldn't even look up from the desk. His office was the size of Grand Central Station. Yeah. He had like 20 guys in dress whites. All of his, all his fleet command guys were there, all his flag officers. And he said, good morning. <laughs> and uh, his name was uh, Rear Admiral Bernard Cowderer, still alive, by the way. And, uh, and, I, and, I, and I knew that I had to find a you – know, you heard me talk before about common ground. I had to find something of common ground to talk about. Yeah. And, and where did I look? The, the one place you always want to look. What's hanging on the wall behind his desk? Ah. Whatever's hanging on the wall behind his desk, he wants you to see because it's what he's most proud of. All right. And what was hanging on the wall behind his desk was a photograph of a boat. Hmm. I lucked out. I knew that boat very well. Huh. I absolutely knew that boat very well. And I said to him, Admiral, you've got a Bertram 31? He said, yeah. I said, that's the best boat they ever built. He said, damn straight. Uh-huh. And I said, well, let me ask you a question. When you make a hard right turn, the, the, the starboard engine cavitates, doesn't it? He said, yeah. I said, and the water pump leaks. He said, yeah. I said, here's how you do it. <laughs> you got to do another hose through the impeller and don't use the freshwater intake. And we just start talking boats. You're in. You're in. And wait. Ten minutes later. His Commodore comes over to him or captain and says, Admiral, your 915 is here. And the Admiral looks at me and goes, you got lunch plans? <laughs> I said, I'm all yours. He said, okay, officers club at noon. <laughs> well, when that lunch ended, all hell broke loose at the Pentagon because he gave me permission. Wow. And here's the end of the story. When he gave me permission, the Pentagon, Pentagon went so nuts. They said, if you're going to be so stupid as to give this guy permission, you got to go with him. <laughs> and so- when that picture was taken, we were on an attack nuclear submarine on a classified mission. To this day, I can't tell you what we did. Yep. Uh, David Burnett took the photograph, and he, he was also sworn to secrecy. And the admiral was right with us. He was down there with us X number of feet below the surface for X number of days. <laughs> now here comes the interesting epilogue to that story. Uh, and the story ran, and it was amazing. Yeah. Uh, two things have happened. One is that, you remember the movie, The Hunt for Red October? Of course, great movie, John Connery. That movie happened because of my trip. Oh, very cool. Well, I love that movie. 
And second of all, without getting into specifics, with the exception of the Russian submarine commander defecting, which did not happen on our trip, uh-huh. uh, everything else that you saw in that movie did happen on our trip. Wow. Yes. And here's the final irony. About two months ago, I got a call out of left field. Actually, it was an email from one of the crew members on that sub uh-huh. who wanted to just check in with me and and tell me that he you know he's he's always kept up with me over the years and how much how much it was great that we were on that mission. Yeah. He said, "I just want to let you know that uh, everybody who was on that mission was given a medal." Huh. And and then he said, "Oh, and by the way, uh, the sub, which was a brand new sub when we were on it." is now being decommissioned in up in the state of Washington. Oh. And and they and they they called to invite me to the decommissioning and um uh, I'm going. Wow, great story. So there you ha- and when they premiered the movie uh in Washington DC at the White House, uh, the admiral was there the and in October. Uh-huh. Okay. He was he was there, Tom Clancy was there and I was sitting right next to the admiral. Oh, amazing. Yep. That's how that happened. And and that's how that picture got taken. Yeah, uh, that's a fantastic story. Uh, well, speaking of um, the Navy, tell me about your trip to the Midway Island. Oh, you've done your homework. <laughs> uh, I love that trip. Uh, you know, people don't realize that until about 1997, it was an active Navy base with over 5,000 people. The runways were long enough to handle B-52s for all of our necessary military operations. It's a major sub-base, major carrier base. And of course, it was the site of the most decisive naval uh, battle and victory in the history of the world. Yeah, yeah. The Battle of Midway. I mean, there's still, you know, a couple of U.S. carriers or a couple of Japanese carriers sunk out there in pretty deep water. Yeah. Um, And in 1997, since the Cold War had ended... Uh, the Navy didn't really need it anymore. And they basically turned it over to U.S. Fish and Wildlife. And the Navy left. And they left the base exactly the way it was. And and the rule was U.S. Fish and Wildlife came in, and the rule was no more than 100 visitors could ever be on the island at any one time. Hmm. And there was a tour operator who thought, what a great idea to sell to sell it as a destination. And they worked out a deal with, with Aloha Airlines, uh, <laughs> since gone bankrupt, out of Hawaii. They equipped a seven thirty seven with extra fuel tanks because there are new there are no alternate airports out sure. there. Yeah, remember Midway Airline, Midway me, Midway Islands, Midway Island uh, is midway between San Francisco and, and Japan. Yeah, uh, so they'd make one flight a week, and so I got on that flight with my camera crew. And my radio crew, and we we broadcast and taped from that island. It was a remarkable, remarkable experience. And I'm sad to say that when Midway, uh, when uh, Aloha failed, uh, the air service to that island has not resumed. So yeah. the only people who are out on Midway right now are some scientific researchers, some U.S. Fish and Wildlife guys, and a little interesting side note that no, not many people know about. Remember, that's a pretty long runway out there. Yeah, of course. And, and when Boeing came up with a 767, and when Boeing came out with a 777, both twin-engine airplanes, uh, they needed to have them certified for extended operations over the water where there were no alternates. Yeah. And the only way they would be certified is if Midway Island stayed open as an airport. Huh. 
as an emergency landing spot in case there was a problem. So every year, Boeing spends millions of dollars keeping the runway open, the tower active, the lights on, in case anybody ever has to land there. Oh, my gosh. And Interesting. Yes. It's a great story. And, and about once or twice a year, guess what? They have to use it. Hmm. And, and it becomes hysterical because uh, right after we left, a United Airlines 747 lost an engine on the way to Tokyo, and they made the emergency landing on Midway Island. With I a, heard with about like, this. With like 340 people. And they didn't have the stairs high enough to reach the door. Is that right? Am I making... They had nothing. And they had to build them. Yeah. And then, and then what happened is they were there for a week because they had to fly in another engine with an entire maintenance team on another plane because that's where you had to fix it. Oh, my gosh. So the, so the passengers on that plane had the best time of their lives. Yeah. It was... It was they had the entire island, this beautiful island... Uh, it was it was an amazing story. Yeah, it's I mean it's a gorgeous spot, right? It's yeah, just um, unbelievable beaches. Yeah, so that's the story of Midway Island. Yeah, that's a great story as well. A um, little bit of a left turn. Speaking not speaking of beautiful places anymore. Chernobyl <laughs> is a yeah is a proper tourist destination these days. But you you won't go. Is that right? Why not? Well, here's the thing. There's a lot to be said for dark tourism. I get it. I don't necessarily think it's always ethical, uh, although there's a place for it. So uh, when we did the royal tour of Poland, uh, the prime minister and I arranged to go to a, a destination at 530 in the morning by ourselves, nobody with us. And we were there for five hours. It was one of the most emotional experiences of my life. And we were able to capture all of it on camera for the show. And that's Auschwitz. Mm. Uh, I get that. Uh but, you know, I failed science in high school, but I do know about nuclear half-lives. Yep. And I just don't think it's an appropriate place for me to go to Chernobyl. Sure. Well, yeah, you don't need to go to a nuclear fallout zone to uh, get into trouble. You've been able to do that in a lot of other places. <laughs> Tell me about the time you got deported from Guatemala. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. Um, this, is, this is where my high school Spanish got me in trouble. Back in 1980, the year that Ronald Reagan ran for election, and Guatemala was being controlled by a right-wing dictator, a really badass guy named Raul Lucas Garcia. And anybody who was an intellectual, a union leader, an educator, a lawyer, was being killed on the streets. Yeah. It was sort of like you know, his version of uh, you know, the Peasants' Revolt in China. Yeah. And or Paul Pot, if you yeah, will, yeah, Cambodia, and, and he was being supported by the United States, and I was invited to go down there to check out the country. What fascinated me was that the PR people who invited me down were the same PR people who became Ronald Reagan's chief of staff, Mike huh. Deaver, and he was on the payroll of this right wing government. So I went down there. And I met with uh, one or two journalists down there who I knew, who gave me the lay of the land and how really bad it was. This is in Guatemala City. Yeah. Uh, at night, at nighttime, you could hear the gunshots of the of the uh, of the desperado gangs on the streets, hired by the president to kill people they didn't like. Yeah. Wow. And and uh, 
there were about 11 people I wanted to interview down there. And I got to all of them. Uh, the 11th was the president. Hmm. I got him last. Uh, and But the other 10 people that I talked to were telling me stories that were so disturbing that I knew I had to get out of there. Yeah. And uh, when it came time for me to talk to the vice president, who was the, pre- who was the person I talked to before the president, he had been elected in a, as part of like a coalition to run the country. He was clearly not the president. In fact, he was on the death list of the president. Hmm. He had to provide his own security systems and his own security detail to protect him from the security detail that was provided for him by the government. Whoa. And yeah. And his name was Dr. Villagran. Hmm. And I was and I said to him, Well, Dr. Villagran, if, if it's as dangerous as you say it is, if it's as unsafe as you say it is, why are you still vice president? Why don't you just resign? He said, Well, Right now, they would think twice before killing a sitting vice president. If I resign, I'll be dead within the hour. Well, now I go to see the president. And the protocol for the interview was that I had to ask my questions in English. Then they would discuss it among themselves in Spanish to see who was going to lie to me back in English. (laughs) And and after about, and this is where I got in trouble. and, And I learned a very important lesson. Thank God I learned it early. And that is the fact that I speak Spanish doesn't necessarily have to be a secret I share with them. Uh-huh. And and after the third lie, I looked at the president and I said, Señor Presidente, me pregunta solamente para usted, ¿verdad? Which basically said, hey, I'm talking to you. Yep. Well, the minute I said that, they knew I knew everything else that was going on. And I was, uh, let's say, escorted out of the country. I was <laughs> deported. And it was very funny because the day before, I had gone shopping and there's some great antique shopping in Guatemala City, most of it European and most of it German, because a lot of the a lot of the Nazi war criminals ended up heading south right after the yeah. war, not just to Argentina, but to Guatemala itself. Huh. And I walked into this antique store and found this beautiful, large wooden clock. I mean, beautiful with the chimes and the bells. And, yeah. and I mean, it was like four feet tall and two and a half feet wide. I mean, you know, you can't pack it. Yep. And so... I go back to my hotel because they gave me 10 minutes to pack and they were hustling me out of the country. And, and now I'm carrying this Fakakta clock. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I get to the airport and I had no idea where I was going. I, didn't exa- I hadn't exactly booked a ticket, right. right? And there was a Pan Am flight, 727 with the rear stairs down. And they hustled me up the rear stairs and I'm holding the stupid clock. And the funny part of that story is I get to Miami and next thing you know, customs wants to rip apart the clock as they think I'm a drug smuggler. <laughs> yeah, right. And I had to explain to them, no, you see, I've just been deported for, you know, <laughs> and we find, I still have the clock. I got the clock. Now, oh my story gosh, is not that's over. amazing. Story is not over. In 1992, Bill Clinton gets elected. Mm-hmm. And three months after I came back from Guatemala with Ronald Reagan as president, I get a phone call saying, hey, did you hear? The vice president in Guatemala just resigned. I said, oh, my God, he's a dead man. Oh, yeah. He said, no, he resigned from Washington, D.C. seeking asylum. Oh. And he lived in Washington, D.C. Uh, until the day he died. Wow. Uh, natural causes. And then when Bill Clinton got elected, one of the very first things he did was literally travel to Guatemala to apologize to the Guatemalan citizens for the United States' support of such, such terrible governments. And if you ever want to read a great book, which I highly encourage you to do by Stephen Kinzer. It's a Pulitzer Prize winner. 
I'm amazed they never did it as, as, as a movie. It's called Bitter Fruit. It's the story of the overt, emphasis on the word overt overthrow of a, of a democratically elected government in Guatemala in 1954 by the United States of America, by the Dulles brothers and the architect of our Central American policy, the then vice president, Richard Nixon. Huh. Um, and the name of the book is Bitter Fruit. I highly recommend it. Great recommendation. When people talk with someone who is as well-traveled as yourself, they expect you to have all the answers, right? In, in hopes that, I guess it'll help guide them on their own travels. You know, what's your favorite country, your favorite hotel, all the, the STs, right, that you mentioned before. But those are really difficult questions to answer for, I think, a true globetrotter like yourself. I think it's virtually impossible the more you travel. But I want to give you a hypothetical. Okay. If you could move to a tropical island like like Bali, for example, for a year, and you, you'd come back no richer, no poorer after that year, but you couldn't leave, or you had the opportunity to spend one hour on the moon, which would you pick? Oh, it would be the tropical island, I'll tell you why. <laughs> okay. No, it's true, because I don't need to be first on my block. Mm-hmm. I, need, I, need to, I need to be able to learn from it, and, and then to be able to apply those lessons. So what am I going to learn from a practical point of view, uh, assuming the trip was now? Yeah. Uh, on the moon, that it, that there's no gravity. We figured that one out with Neil Armstrong. Yep. <laughs> there's no oxygen. Figured that one out too. But there's no water. Okay. All right. I've just done three minutes on the moon. What am I going to do for the next 57 minutes? I'll come home now. Other than realize I got nothing to do, and maybe try to steal a rock and bring it back and convince everybody it came from the moon. Um, I mean, look, I'm a big fan of space exploration. I'm a bigger fan of underwater explanation. Yeah. We know just about as little about underwater as we do about space, and people forget that. Great point. And, and for, for me, to spend a year on a tropical island means, and you mentioned one in particular, but I could mention about 30 of them. Of course. Uh, it would be an opportunity for me to reset. Yeah. It would be an opportunity for me to exhale. Yeah. It would be an opportunity for me to learn, to read, to have longer, deeper conversations when I'm not running between airport terminals. So for me, that would be my choice. Well, and as you said, you do spend quite a bit of time running between airport terminals, and we'll, we'll kind of transition more towards the aviation and airline portion of the show. You fly about 450,000 miles a year. Um, well, not this year. Not, yeah, sure. <laughs> not this well, year. No, normally, it's, it's, uh, it's about 450,000 a year. Although I will say we've been traveling a lot in the last five months, so I'll probably get close to that by the end of this year. Mm-hmm. So 23 million lifetime miles. And and yeah. I I spoke to probably one of the few people on the planet who's flown more miles than you, Tom Stuker. I know Tom. He's, he's a cool guy, but he's flown more miles than me on one airline. So Yeah, exactly. So I wanted to ask you if you're loyal to a sp- specific airline or hotel and, and why why that one. Well, no, I'm not loyal to any of them only because as a journalist, I have to fly all of them. Okay. Um, you know, I'm not so much of a mileage addict as a mileage realist. Um, you know, in the in the days in which they made mileage awards very difficult to redeem, um, having 23 million miles is somewhat meaningless if you can't redeem them when you want to use them. So I can sit here and brag to you about how many miles I have. It's sort of like absurd because I never get a chance to use them. Uh, but but no, I'm not loyal to any one airline because I need to fly them all, and I do fly them all. Yeah. Uh, and. Uh, uh, in a given two or three week period, I'll probably fly six or seven different airlines. And uh, that's how you learn. And and I carry, which goes back to 1985, uh, something called cockpit and jump seat authority from the FAA. Oh, very uh, interesting. It's not, 
Yes, I, you couldn't get it today after 9-11. Well, you still but got I still it. Have it. So I'm still grandfathered in. When we did the uh, the two-hour primetime special on American Airlines on CNBC, uh, you may have noticed we shot that in the cockpit. And and everybody said we couldn't do it. And the DHS said we couldn't do it. And the FAMs are going crazy, the federal air marshals. Yep. Then I showed them my, my cockpit authority, and like they freaked out, and we shot it. Huh. Um, they, they couldn't figure out a way why we couldn't do it. And the funny thing was, on the, on the flights that we did that I was on, where we had our camera crews in the cockpit because of that, we had probably 20 different federal air marshals on the plane. They piled on. They just they just couldn't believe it. Yeah. Um, it was so silly. But uh, so, no, I'm not loyal to any one airline um, or any one route. Yeah. You did mention frequent flyer miles, and I've heard you talk recently about how you think those programs will be restructured or not. And I wonder what strategies you're implementing with your own miles and points and which cards you like to use. Well, they're they're constantly being restructured because before the pandemic, they were constantly being revised to become more and more, or I should say, less and less valuable. Um, yet they're they're you know one of the most mor- miraculously mar- wonderful marketing uh, programs of the 20th century, right? I mean, they, they, unbelievable. These loyalty Our programs. Debris, 1981. So they're it's 40 years old now. Yeah. Um, so yes, I have all these miles. Uh, right now, it's a te- it's a definite buyer's market, for all the obvious reasons. Uh, there's not only seats available, but in many cases, the mileage levels required to redeem have gone down, which never happens. Yeah. So I saw a business class award for between New York and LA for like fifteen thousand miles. You couldn't get a coach award for thirty last year. Yeah. So you know there 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 are some uh, some opportunities there if you look hard enough. Speaking of trying all these different airlines. Yeah, I saw that you got to tour the Etihad residence and I know you've, you've flown probably, uh, you know, the bulk of airlines in the world, but, um, I mean, what did you think of that space? Well, it, it's a great stunt. It's a great stunt. <laughs> uh, no, it's true. I mean, it's, it's sort of like, you know, how British Airways branded their entire airline around the Concorde and when most people never flew the Concorde, but they liked the idea of the Concorde. Um, so here's a, here's a, 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 a like a three room, compartment at the nose of an A380 that has a sitting room, a bedroom, and a bathroom with a shower. Yeah. And what I thought was always so fun uh, is that they sold you the ticket for one or two people. And my argument with was, if you're getting this ticket and you're only flying by yourself, you are a loser. You got to be able to find at least one person to go with you. You No, you got to fly to find a significant other I mean, come on! It was it was meant for this. Yeah. yeah I mean, oh my God! You you're gonna fly by yourself for this, idiot! You know. Did you um, did you ever fly the Concorde? Speaking of. Oh, many times. Uh, in fact, I actually did the definitive investigative piece on the actual crash of the Concorde back on July 25th, uh, 2000, mm-hmm. uh, outside of Paris, and it was our show on on MSNBC that overturned the French verdict in the court case. Mm. Um, and, and forced the French to come to grips with the fact that they were the ones at fault and not Continental Airlines. Supersonic business jets are kind of making a comeback. I mean, they don't exist at the moment, but they, there's a, several companies developing prototypes. Do you think they're, they have a future? They do, uh, for two reasons. One, it's a different business model. You're not going to see a 99-passenger uh, uh, supersonic plane. Yeah. They'll be in the vicinity of 14 passengers or less. Number one, but number two, and most importantly, if you go back technologically to the days of the Concorde started, which are the early seventies, it was a flying fuel tank. Uh-huh. The Concorde had fourteen separate fuel tanks, uh, wow. and the and the role of the flight engineer on that plane 
was only to control the center of gravity. He was constantly pumping fuel from one tank to another so the plane would be stable uh-huh. in the air. Um, well, it could never make any money. It was, it was, the fuel consumption was out of control. The new ones are, are benefiting from better engine technology and most importantly, better sound mitigation. They found a way to get approval to fly, to fly over land supersonically because they've been able to figure out a way to mitigate the intensity of the sound barrier, yeah. of, of the sound boom. And, um, and that's what they're testing now. Because you remember that when the Concorde first started flying, it was limited. It could only fly from London to New York, from Paris to New York. At one point, it was flying from London to Barbados. Mm-hmm. But if it was going to fly over land, it was required to fly subsonically, which made the fuel burn even double. Uh-huh. So it was impractical, right? Yeah. Uh, the real future, if we could ever figure it out, is hypersonic travel, where you can go to New York to Tokyo in three hours. It's a matter of, of controlling you know, uh, the, the, the fuel substance and doing it in a safe way. But the new companies like Boom and the other ones – are in the testing phase now. They're going to try to fly some prototypes by the end of this year, more than likely early next year. Yep. And they'll have limited use of, as business jets uh, for 14 passengers or under. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the Lufthansa first class terminal. Do you think there is a better experience in commercial aviation? Uh, there is now. But at the time I flew it, no, that was... That was an amazing experience. It was it was the one time I would go to the airport six hours ahead of my flight just to hang in the terminal. Yeah, it's um, amazing. Have, have you seen it? I've been there. It is it is pretty cool. And I did I did do the thing where I left immigration, walked along the sidewalk just to say, you know, I just so I could be driven to the plane in the limo. Well, here's the funny thing: you, you've given away my punchline. <laughs> I got there. I got there six hours early on my first time at the terminal on a flight that was leaving at ten o'clock at night for uh, Johannesburg. And uh, so I got there like at five in the afternoon and I'm, I'm enjoying the restaurant and they have a, I don't even smoke cigars, but I went in the cigar lounge, yep. uh, the bathrooms had these dig sunken, sunken tubs. And, and of course my favorite, the snacks. Oh yeah, my God. Oh my gosh. I mean, endless macadamia nuts and licorice. And oh, I mean, I was like in heaven. Yep. And then my favorite, and I'm not a big drinker, their bar with 80 different brands of single malt whiskey. That's incredible. Oh my God. Okay. So. Love that, but I wasn't used to it. So you know, when I first came in there, they uh, you did this, so you know they take your passport and they they'll, yep. they'll, they're going to process your boarding pass. They get you on your and right. They just so I'm and I'm looking at my gate. They have a little thing with, where the gate is. Well, the gate was like gate ninety nine. It was like in another planet. Yep. And and so here I am. The plane leaves at ten o'clock at night. So by nine o'clock, I went to the woman. I said, "Should we sort of like leave for the gate now?" Yeah. Oh no, 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 no. <laughs> okay, so. I walk around now. I'm, now I'm beginning to get a little antsy and bored. And now it's nine ten, nine fifteen. I'm developing a rash. I mean, I don't know. I'm going. <laughs> uh, we go now. No. All of a sudden, quarter of ten. She goes, "Okay, we go now. Is the plane late? No, no, right on time." I went. So we take another elevator. I wasn't ready for this. Yeah. Not the elevator I came in on. And now there are five drivers on five Porsches and five drivers on five Mercedes. I'm asked to pick one. <laughs> this is too crazy. I pick one. I get in it, and now we go like a bat out of hell all the way over to gate 99. But here's the fun part. As you know, at Frankfurt, every jetway at the end of the jetway also has an elevator, at which you don't see it in American jetways. No. And and so I get to the thing. They put me in the elevator. When the elevator door opens up, I'm at the door to the plane. And they said, oh, Mr. Greenberg, we've been waiting for you. Please come in. Boom. Close the door. We left. I went, I'm loving this, right? Pretty amazing. Uh, there's, one, there's one that's sort of giving it a run for its money. Uh-huh. 
And that's the first class terminal in Doha in Qatar. Yes. I'd love to hear your experience there. Yeah, that one is, they've got everything there. I mean, literally everything. I mean, soup to nuts, uh, you know, massage therapists and sushi bar. And I mean, you, you can't, it's great. Yeah. And and the problem is you could miss your flight because you'll fall asleep. Yeah. I saw that you, uh, you said that you courier your bags ahead of time. Do you? I do. Okay. So you actually do that. But I suppose I maybe most times you don't have to. Oh, actually I do have to. And I'll tell you why. If you value your time, now I don't do this internationally, but on domestic U.S. flights, I haven't checked a bag in about nine years. Wow. Uh, because first of all, there are two kinds of airline bags in my book. There's either carry-on or lost. So we'll start with that. <laughs> Second of all, I save two and a half hours of my life every time I fly by not checking a bag. I FedEx my bags. Now you can do, I'm not promoting FedEx, you do UPS right. or any more, one of 17 other services, but in my case, I use FedEx. And, and not only that, I usually know where I'm going and I, I know when I'm going. So for example, I'm flying in three days to LA. So tonight I'll FedEx my bags mm -hmm. and I'll FedEx out on three day in advance discount. Yep. And so I don't have to schlep them to the airport. Mm -hmm. I don't have to schlep them once over the airport to another TSA area. I don't have to wait in baggage claim for 40 minutes with the other refugees waiting for my bags to show up <laughs> and then getting stuck in traffic. Right. Yeah. As a result, I can turn around my entire procedure so that when I get to the airport to fly, I go to the arrivals area. Yeah. There's nobody there. Yep. I just take the elevator up and off I go. When I land in LA, I don't go down to arrivals. My car picks me up at departures. So I've saved two and a half hours. And when I get to where I'm going, whether it's my house or a hotel, guess what's there? My bags. Right. The only time FedEx has ever lost my bags, yes, it's happened. It's happened maybe three times in, in the last, I'd say, 15 years. And that's when there was a freak snowstorm in Memphis. Because as you know, if I want to FedEx my bag from Manhattan to Brooklyn, it's still going to go through Memphis. Yeah. Goofy how that works. How do you feel about people clapping when the plane lands? <laughs> it depends on where I'm going and who's flying the plane. <laughs> Fair answer. Yeah. I mean, I, listen, I've, I've been on a couple of flights where we clapped. I, I mean, I was, I'll never forget this. Uh, I, I just talked to him on the phone the other day because we both remember as if it was yesterday. We were doing a story in the days when I was at ABC for Good Morning America near um, near Cincinnati. We had to get to Cleveland. Uh, and uh, so we were flying a Continental Connection little propeller, like an ATR. And uh, it was so rough. It was literally so turbulent that uh, my head made a mark in the ceiling of the plane. Oh. Oh. Um, and so did his. Uh, his name was Jeff Jason. He was our cameraman and producer. And and uh, and it was if anybody listening to this program knows anything about flying, we didn't land in Cleveland. We crabbed in. You know what that yeah. means? Sliding in sideways, pretty much. No, crabbing means you you literally take your wings and do them perpendicular to the ground to fight the wind that's coming at the plane from the left side. And then at the last second, you slam the plane into the ground, mm. right? You pancake in. Right, right. Well, when we landed, I looked at him and he looked at me and the, the flight crew was, the flight crew was supposed to take that plane back to Cincinnati. They refused huh. and everybody applauded and we got off the plane. <laughs> well, in that sense, it seems more than warranted. Yeah. So when you think back and you've been to 150 plus countries, is that right? Uh, 151, but who's counting? Okay. 
So you've been to 151 countries. You've obviously spent the bulk of your career traveling for work. When you think back on all those experiences, all the places you've been, what impact has that travel had on you? And what impact do you believe it has on the world? On one level, it allows me to realize the impact that I can have on someone else's life if I concentrate enough to try to help them um, and and make the phone phone calls that I otherwise never would have made had I not traveled in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's really been an amazing part to me. So that's the first thing. Look, I'm not going to sing Kumbaya here either. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just going to say that as long as we stay in the conversation, it's amazing the impact travel can have, not just on you, that's a selfish approach, on others, when you just start talking. And... And I've seen it happen in the most remote islands in Fiji. I've seen it happen at uh, uh, in New York City in a cab. Seriously, uh, uh, I've seen it happen in the middle of a war zone in in Saudi Arabia uh, when you least expect it. But you first had to. It's sort of like it's like a raffle where you need to be present to win. And and so that's tra- that's travel to me. It's the world's greatest raffle where you need to be present to win. So you got to travel. That's Peter Greenberg. You can find him on Twitter or Instagram at Peter Greenberg or on CBS News, jousting with officials from the U.S. State Department. If you enjoyed the show or learned anything from it, it would be supremely awesome if you'd share it with someone who might find it interesting or rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. If you rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, I'll be very stoked. Doing so helps other people find these episodes, blah, 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 blah. As always, feel free to reach out on social with any questions or comments. Once again, I'm your host, Ina Grimace, wishing you smooth travels. Peace.